welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Matt Carpenter on February 12th, Lord's Day service. Text this morning is Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Let us pray. Father, you have revealed yourself to us, and we give you glory. May the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When the earliest colonists came to North America, a prominent tree found from the very southernmost coast all the way to the northern portion was the North American chestnut tree. These giant trees were over 100 feet tall and often 10 feet in diameter. Its wood was known to blunt the strongest nails, nothing like the soft pine we have now. Yet in the early 1800s, a blight came that essentially eradicated that beautiful tree from our continent. There are ongoing efforts to restore this tree using some of the remaining chestnuts here, but they are, the effort is tenuous. We're still not sure if it will take. In the Psalms, we read of the glory of God's people. We read about how one day it will come when they will abide safely under their king and his glory will dwell in the land. But several generations after those psalms were written, you face, the people of God face the exile when much of the glory of Israel had largely departed. It was snuffed out under the rule of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Then Jesus came, and he manifested God's glory. One miracle, one exorcism, one sermon at a time. But Jesus did not come teaching something new. He did not abandon the old, saying it's outdated, we don't need it anymore. Instead, as we see in the Sermon on the Mount, and especially in these Beatitudes, Jesus takes the neglected wisdom of the Psalms. In addition to other prophets and the law, he he takes this and he replants this wisdom. 
like one restoring a cut-down forest. As we read in this, we see that the creator of Eden is restoring the new creation. The Beatitudes give us a snapshot of God's people flourishing. It doesn't come from following a list of rules. We all love rules. Rules come really easily to us. You know, give us a list between 100 and 450 things we can do. And if I can check off the majority of those, I'm good. My good things will outweigh my bad things. Except that's nothing of what we find in Scripture. Yes, obedience is necessary. But no one is justified by his own works, by works of the law, no matter how good those works are. The purpose of the Beatitudes is to bring us to wholeness. That's what we read in Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse 48. It, he says, to be perfect. That means be whole, be mature, be complete as your Father in heaven is. So we have the example before us of what wholeness looks like. And it's not just that saying that God keeps His own law, which He does. No, everything that we see around us that is good is a manifestation of the wholeness of our Heavenly Father. If it's in the world, if it's good, it's because God Himself is good. And He does not contain His goodness, but it overflows into every good thing that we know. Jesus is giving a pattern here for us to imitate the overflowing abundance of the Father. But our pursuit of wholeness is not just something for us individually. And that's often how we read the Sermon on the Mount. We read the Beatitudes like, okay, I've got to do this and this. I've got to be poor in spirit. Don't really know what that means, but I'll try. And then I've got to, you know, be a peacemaker. And I'm, that, that sounds like being a really nice person all the time. And, you know, so, so we think it's just about me doing a bunch of stuff. But no. It's about manifesting God's glory in the world. This is how he shows his glory in the world, by his people imitating the Savior. It's walking with Jesus. That's what these Beatitudes are telling. Is this the introduction to how we walk with God? He begins... In verse 6, as we, we covered in previous weeks, verses 3 through 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, and those who are meek. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Righteousness, just like the word blessed that we read, it, it's, it's full of meaning. It encompasses God's justice, His judgment of wickedness, his faithfulness to his covenant and virtue and moral goodness. John Stott points out three elements of righteousness we see in Scripture. There is legal 
moral and social righteousness, all of which we are called to pursue. Our legal righteousness pertains to our right standing with God through the work of Christ. Moral righteousness is the pursuit of obedience to God's law. Social righteousness, which in our circles is often ignored because we, we are deathly afraid of when we see social righteousness is really close in meaning to social justice and we hate justice, right? Well, no, we hate the perversion of justice that we observe in the culture. But guess what? Rome was never worried about social justice. Okay? Not the way that we interpret it. The idea that the world tries to put upon us of justice is a perversion of the best of Christianity. All, they can, all Satan can do is imitate the good and try to turn it inside out. He has no creation, creative powers of, his, of himself. So do not hand over to the world social justice and say this is, that social justice is just something those w weird people out there do. No, it's something we are called to desire, but desire it in accordance to Scripture. It's pursuing virtue on behalf of the community. It sees the disfiguration of the world and desires that disfiguration to be restored. In his commentary on, uh, in the book of Galatians, excuse me, no, in the Sermon on the Mount. He wrote a great commentary on Galatians, which you should read sometime. But Martin Luther talks about this call to righteousness. Now, again, Luther is considered the theologian of our legal righteousness. But Luther said this. He said that we should not... ...that we see, but we should rather give ourselves to them. This is Martin Luther. He, he said we're called to give ourselves to them. And if you read his biography, Luther did not take a, we're in the church, we, well, we mind our business, and then the world can just do whatever. No. The man died trying to rectify a disagreement between two princes. He was sick and that he knew he was dying and he was on his way to help bring together these two princes who were at each other and trying to bring justice to them. And all of his life you can see this manifested. Altogether, legal, moral, and social righteousness makes up holistic righteousness. As we are restored to a right relationship with God, we are called and empowered to pursue righteousness in our walk with our neighbors and with our communities. The Christian should be marked by an unquenchable desire for this right walk with God, with our neighbor, and to see the world restored to harmony with her Creator. As with all virtues, though, the desire for righteousness must be balanced. You see, it's really easy if you, you can take any of the ancient virtues, whether they are the, 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 the virtues of 
you know, the Christian virtues or the, the wider virtues that were practiced and, and recognized even by pagans, you have the virtue is walking the path in the middle, and then to each side there is an extreme. That you, you can fall one way or another. So our desire for righteousness exists, but also in the very next statement, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mercy means having compassion towards those in need and is often connected with forgiveness of sin. That is discharging a debt that someone owes you. Now, whether this, is, this compassion is manifested through aiding those in need or forgiving those who have wronged you, the pursuit looks the same. Those who sin need justice, but they also need compassion. And we all are naturally inclined more towards one or the other. All of us. We have a natural tendency towards one or another. Often in conservative churches, we are really good at justice. We want right and wrong. You follow the word or else. Okay? And, but, and we look askance, and understandably so, at churches that skew more in the other direction, which focuses just on compassion to the exclusion of God's law. We say we don't want to be like that. But Jesus calls us to both. Our desire for righteousness will often be frustrated by people. We pursue what we know is good, and then others are just not on the same page sometimes. Sometimes they don't work with us, or even they work against us. And I'm not just talking about people way off somewhere else that you see on the news. I'm talking about people who you live with, who sometimes don't follow righteousness the way that you see they should follow it. They do things. We don't like it. We can be like James and John. You remember the story when James and John, what Jesus, he's in Samaria and, he, and he's preaching and the Samaritans reject him and James and John have a great idea. They say, here's what you need to do. You need to call down fire from heaven to destroy the people of Samaria because they won't listen. Now look, we say... Boneheads, well, why would they do that? They had a desire for righteousness. They wanted to see their perversion destroyed. So let me ask you, how many times have you ever said, I wish X place would just fall off the face of the earth? Same thing. Same thing. What did Jesus do? Did he say, Peter and John, or excuse me, James and John, I understand. I really wish it would happen myself, but we've got to keep ourselves in line. No, he, he called them sons of thunder. There's some interesting history behind that, which I won't get into now. But that's not the first time sons of thunder was ever used in ancient literature. It has precedence before. But Jesus is not saying, good job, guys. We need more, like, more people like that here. No, he's saying, 
the people need compassion. The church was often known in its early days as the group who displays mercy. They, they would give. They would help the children who were abandoned because they were handicapped. They would help the elderly whose own grown children did not want to support them anymore. And when people would see this, that they would see how the least in the, among the community were treated by the church, it opened them up to the message. And so Jesus is saying that our standards of love and of compassion cannot stop just when someone violates our standards for right and wrong. Mercy intrudes when we're not anticipating it. If it were not for God's mercy intruding on our lives when we did not deserve it, none of us would be here. Now that, I know you've heard that th type of thing before, and it's easy when we've heard something enough before to let it just bounce off like a tennis ball on a brick wall. But think about this. Have you done enough to deserve God's mercy? We don't qualify. But Jesus says, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. We'll come to that later in this sermon. We heard about it also last week in Jason's sermon. The mercy of God is what stands between us and an abysmal end. So we need mercy, but not only do we need it, and not only has He given it, but we are now called to display it. So there is this healthy tension then between desiring righteousness, desiring justice, and showing mercy. But this is not the first place where that's, that tension is seen. It's hard to apply, but we see it in Psalm 85, verse 10, where we read, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. So the psalmist in Psalm 85 is presenting a picture of mercy and truth not being antagonistic towards each other, but rather coming together as friends, as family. These virtues which we can easily pit against one another and side with one or the other should instead be like a, a gathering where the best of the best comes. And we can enjoy both. The mature Christian is the one who walks in both. Well, then Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, this is one of the most intimidating Beatitudes. Because we all know our hearts. It's funny. If you read Augustine... St. Augustine, was, when, when he writes in his sermon on the Beatitudes, 
He, you know, he gives, there's a little bit about each, each of them. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, a paragraph. Blessed are those that mourn, a paragraph. So he gives paragraph, 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 and then he comes to blessed are the pure in heart. Boom! Takes up about two-thirds of the rest. So there's a lot on this. But we know the darkness in our hearts, and then we know the darkness that we have contributed. We know what we've added to the darkness. I mean, is this bad enough if we're just left on our own? I mean, if, how many of you have ever had to teach your kids to sin? Say, no, you're being too godly. We, well, I, need, I, need some, I need to learn some lessons as a parent. So how about, no, we don't have to do that. Or have you ever said, where did you learn this? Because I didn't teach it to you. I'm sure somebody, just talk to somebody. If you've not experienced that, maybe, you know, one of your neighbors has. But we see this. Where do they get this? This is natural. We're not inclined to righteousness. And neither are our kids. But then we do additional things. We look at things. We live in the world and we don't refrain from much of what the world offers. It's like this forest, that's, this place has been deforested and that we're trying to help regrow. And if you just go dump a bunch of oil and gasoline on the ground, how's that going to help? That's what we do to ourselves often when we just take in worldliness. So we're told we should guard our hearts. Proverbs 4, verse 23. Guard your heart, for out of it flows the issues of life. Living in a fallen creation nat means naturally dealing with impurity. So David speaks of this in Psalm 24 when he says, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to vanity or sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Do you hear the language there? You have pure heart and you have blessing. He's the one that will receive the blessing, the flourishing of the Lord. You'd almost think that Jesus had this in mind when he's given the beatitude. Living in the world tempts us often to a type of hardness. We think, well, I'm not going to give in to that, and I'm going to make sure that I hate the world enough. So we become cynical. So, but we can't do that either. When you're surrounded by wickedness, yes, you have to guard your heart, but we also must not hate the people who were there. So, so what do we do? We're called to guard. Yes, we are called to guard our hearts. But we are also called to love 
to, to walk with God, to love Him, and also to love the things that He's placed here. Because every good thing that He's put in the earth in some way causes us, and, or should cause us, to give glory to Him. So David can say in Psalm 37, verse 4, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He'll give you the desires of your heart. When you're delighting yourself in the Lord, it allows you not only to, to, to enjoy Him, to delight in Him, but it gives you capacity to enjoy the gifts that are in His world. God's people should simultaneously, as, as those who are pure in heart, we should simultaneously be the most earthy. And by earthy, I mean loving the good things in God's creation as well as the most heavenly, that is, enjoying God Himself. Sometimes we shrink back from, the, from this call to purity of heart because we think it means having to choose. Either I enjoy stuff or I enjoy God. Not at all. That's a lie. Paul calls it a lie in his letter to Timothy. Calls it, you know, th those who say that marriage is bad, that food is bad, he says it's a doctrine of demons. So don't embrace that false diversion. Being pure in heart is the only way to fully enjoy God and His creation. And then he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. This is not a call to false peace. Again, we, we hear about this type of thing and we think it just means overlook stuff. Try to get people to get along. So you have one person who sins, who's embracing sin, and another person who's not embracing sin. Well, being a peacemaker means getting them both to sin just a little bit. This one less, and maybe this one more, so they can come in the middle. That's not true. The call to being a peacemaker is the call to restore and reorder relationships in light of the work of Christ. We know this from Jesus. Making peace involves sacrifice. That's what it took. When the, when the gulf was fixed between God and man, it was only the sacrifice of the God-man who could accomplish the peace that we needed. But then we in turn say, yes, Jesus has made peace, and now, well, now the call is to us. Jesus showed us how to do this. Everything that he, that he teaches us to do in the Sermon on the Mount, He Himself did. So now He's saying, go out and you do these things. And it's tough. We often resist because we think, if I give of myself here, I don't know that this other person's going to give. And the only way that I'm going to give is if I have some assurances. Well, guess where your assurances come from? Not that other person. They come from the one who died and was resurrected on your behalf. That's where your assurance comes from. 
So you say, what if I'm taken advantage of? Well, I got news for you. It's not what if, it's when you're taken advantage of. Because it will happen. That's what makes the teaching of the Beatitudes so monumental. Because he's not saying follow what you've always wanted to do anyway. He's saying, I've got this way, and it's, a, it's not a new way. It's actually the old way cleared off. It's the old way demonstrated by the perfect one. Jesus sacrificed himself to make peace between us and the Father. And he showed us that we are now called to the sacramental path and the work of making peace and to pointing others to the peacemaker. So Jesus' words overturn our natural way of being in the world. We don't just give ourselves to it blindly. We give ourselves to this work in faith. We do the thing that seems impossible. But we do so, we can do so in faith because he, he has promises attached to this. For the one who desires God's justice, he says, your desire will be satisfied. He will not leave you hanging. For the one who shows mercy, he himself will show you mercy. He will have compassion on you when you are in need. For the one who pursues a pure heart, you will see him. Here you see him by faith, but you will see him one day, and it won't be by faith anymore. It will be by sight. And the one who pursues peace, who pursues the reordering of the world and of relationships in accordance to the work of Christ, for that person you will be called the child of God. Do you ever think what it will be like when you come before God after your death and you hear the words, well done. We may not be able to imagine it very well right now. But I can promise you that when you are standing before your maker, everything, you will think about everything you've done. And to hear those words will be the most important words you've ever heard in your life. Because everything in your life leads up to when you see God. But again, let's not keep this only in the individual sense. I want to take you back very briefly to the, to the, word, the chapter that I read earlier from uh, Psalm 85. Because the time that Jesus was speaking to his people, it's very similar to the time referred to in Psalm 85. He, he begins... 85 verse 9, excuse me, uh, previous to that. Verse 4, restore us, O God of our salvation. 
and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger all generations? Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you? Show your mercy, O Lord, and grant your salvation. So that psalm was not at a time when things were at their best. So this is the prayer. So, so what does this, this restoration of the kingdom look like? Well, it looks like what we hear in verse 9 of Psalm 85. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. That glory may dwell in our land. So how do we know that this glory is shown. What does it look like that glory dwells in the land after all the expectation of the people and then seeing it all fall apart and having to live under occupation thinking there's no way that this can happen. And then Jesus comes along and he, he refers whether explicitly or implicitly to the Psalms and he, he says the time will come. The, message, the good news of the kingdom is that the time will come when glory will dwell in the land. So what does that look like? Well, that's how, right after he says glory will dwell in the land, that's when he again speaks in verse 10. And he says, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. When we pursue God's plan for flourishing, as found in these Beatitudes, we participate in the renewing of His creation. Jesus taught us the way. He showed us the way. Then He sent His Spirit for us to continue the work. If you want to, God's glory to dwell in the land, the hope is not first tied to our controlling the levers of power or our ability to stir fear in the heart of the secular world. Our hope is in living as God's children in the world, pursuing justice, showing mercy, cultivating a pure heart, and pursuing peace. I don't know what's going to happen with the American chestnut. Maybe it'll work, and I hope that it does, because that's a fantastic tree. But I can tell you what will happen with God's assurance to the restoration of His world. What was once cut down and poisoned is being replanted and renewed. And saint of God, you have the privilege of participating in that work of renewal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for hearing us. We thank you for your promises. And may we Walk in the light of those promises. Through Christ our Savior we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com.
That's trinityreformedkirk.com.